there's a compassion that I think exists or an empathy to the human condition. Architecture can make you cry. Welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Rose Wolkowski, and this week's episode features Rice Architecture professor Carlos Jimenez speaking with Cade Manning-Hayes and Jesus Robles Jr. Cade and Jesus are the founding members of the architecture firm Dust, based in Tucson, Arizona. Dust was recently awarded the Rice Design Alliance 2019 Spotlight Award. On February 19th, they'll be joining us in Houston to present a lecture at the MFAH, so mark your calendars. Now let's tune in. This is Carlos Jimenez, and uh, today we have the pleasure of having with us um, the two principals of uh, DUST, uh, Jesus and Kate, who had just received the Spotlight Award. Perhaps we could begin by asking you um, a critical question, which is how this all came about, how the new firm came about. Was there a moment or a project that started this uh, enterprise, this collaboration between the two of you? Thanks for the introduction, Carlos. This is Kate. I think there are two poignant moments um, that sort of led to the formation of dust. One was Jesus and I meeting in our first year of architecture school in 97. That friendship was the seed of everything that has now transpired. And as, as sort of we took our disparate paths after graduation, we continued our friendship and uh, conversations. And then, you know, Jesus came through Tucson a few different times. I think when we started that friendship, of course, we didn't have any idea that there would be the starting this firm together. And I think as Kay was mentioning, these two different paths after graduation from Texas Tech University grad school, I sort of went on this path traveling around the Southwest, um, working for different architects and directly working construction jobs as a carpenter, as a laborer. There were times where projects were in Tucson that I'd come back into Tucson but then go to other places like San Diego and Baltimore. We did quite a bit of traveling in that time. And during those times, as our friendship sort of coalesced and ideas evolved, we're talking about these ideals. But you met in Tucson. You just happened to be traveling well, to the area? Upon graduation, I got a job at Rick Joy Architects. And then his approach at the time was uh, design-build. It just seemed like that's a dream job, and somehow I landed it. And so I was here working. Uh, at Rick's, and we had some construction jobs that I took over. Jesus was in San Diego, and I, I remember calling him and asking him what he was doing because we needed help. That was the first time he came to live, and then we finished up two projects under Rick, and then he split. I remember it. Kate was already working and living in Tucson, and as I finished graduate school, I left Lubbock with, you know, very little money heading west to, to find work, and I stopped in Tucson, and Kate was building uh, one of the projects, Adobe Canyon. And so I stayed here for like two weeks and he gave me a, a labor job to dig a trench on the side of this mountain. You know, beautiful, it was beautiful landscape. It was just in ruin. For me, that sort of turned my head. I was sort of oblivious to it before. And so, and then, you know, I, I made some gas money and headed west. And then that was kind of where he called back, seeing about this potential to work in the field at Rich Architects. And then fast forward five years. And then we got the, the opportunity to secure a contract which was the Tucson Mountain Retreat. By securing the contract, 
we knew we had uh, something to build upon. I was curious if during this friendship you were already starting to develop a common goal to perhaps someday work together or how did that come about? And while you're perhaps discussing that, you could tell us a little bit about the provocative name of Dust as a name for your practice. The conversations were organic for this period of time. And for me, in my mind, in my memory, this was sort of this incubation time. I was pursuing a different path in architecture that was more hands-on construction, looking for opportunities with design-build firms in the Southwest. And so for me personally, I was already defining this ethic of how I wanted to sort of craft that path in my career, not knowing where it would go. And that would attribute to that time digging the trench at Richard Architect of like, this is a possibility to achieve a certain idea and a certain process. There were definitely these conversations and ideals and these things being talked about. And a lot of them were happening in Tucson, but Kate and I were also doing a lot of traveling into Mexico, into West Texas, Marfa, New Mexico, landscapes around there. And so being behind the windshield for that long, I think these conversations and the landscape roars also sort of that backdrop and feeding these ideas. And I, and I don't think we, we knew quite yet, you know, that that would culminate into the firm and the trajectory. It really was that opportunity with that first contract. What was that first uh, startup, let's say, or did you get a recommendation or was it um, a friend that led you to your first important commission or in the process, uh, you developed also the name of your firm and uh, how you began a, an office or the circumstances that provoked such an adventure. The, the Tucson Mountain Retreat was that contract that was the launching pad for us to form a business. One could argue that it was born somewhat out of naivety about we can do this. We can do this. You know, there's just a lot of things we learned. The learning curve is always steep. But that contact came through friends who owned land nearby the Tucson Mountain Retreat. And the potential was there for the owner to hire any architect in Tucson. He obviously explored that, but with cheerleading from our, our friends that you should hire these guys, he did, and he gave us a lot of trust. It definitely was a word of mouth thing, and, and at the time, we didn't have a business until that happened. I was taking my exam. And that was the one caveat for the potential client that he wouldn't hire us without a license. And so that was already in pursuit, but it just made it more more real and we attained it quicker. And then, then we got the contract, then the naming part comes in. Anyone who names something understands how hard it is. I think part of the conversations we were having back then, probably still have today to some degree, is that we, we started with some parameters on what the name should or shouldn't be. But one of those was that it should just really be devoid of the individual or the, the personal name and the myth of the Lone Star. And then can the name communicate a feeling and represent a place that we dwell and that means something to us? Can it be relatable to an audience? And I think it's easier in retrospect to sort of put that in one sentence. There's this imagery that we have embedded in our, our beings from traveling this region and other regions. The idea of dust being part of everyday life, the thing that everyone can relate to. 
you know, we driving these dirt roads in West Texas, Kate and I meeting in Lubbock, Texas, would immediately, I think, put that connotation of dirt and dust. Well, you have to be in a dirt storm out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, a, it's an interesting analogy because dust has this presence, even if it's not visible, you know, you feel the presence of, of the dust in the desert in this region of the United States. And it's also um, an association that at least personally, I always have had with time. You know, for me, dust also represents accumulation of time. You know, if you, like if you have a bookshelf or a windowsill and it gets uh, uninterrupted from falling, dust accumulates time and you're aware of it. And it has uh, lots of connotations and obviously construction too. It's the first presence of the construction when it, it interrupts the placidity of a place and you start to see dust as a kind of a reaction to the mobilization of earth or the mobilization of materials. So I think it's a very appropriate denomination for your firm and knowing how interested you are with building and I think Jesus, you keep going back to this idea of trenching or digging into mm -hmm. the earth and what happens in that process. So you started with this uh, very important contract and then you settle on a name for an office, Dust. And how do you then begin to structure the office? Obviously, there were only two of you. I assume you still have that same relationship, but do you normally work like a design-build practice? You operate through other hirings like labor teams or to execute your projects. But I know also that you do a lot of your work on site, correct? Correct. We kind of kept the structure more conventional. We had learned from some of the previous architects we'd worked for. I'd worked a little bit in San Diego for uh, Sebastian Mariscal Studio. And I kind of got sort of the breakdown of how they were structuring their develop, design, and build. Sebastian was really savvy with how to structure that. Mm -hmm. And we kind of had this idea that we would keep architecture and construction separate as far as businesses. And this would allow the potential financial and legal separation and also contractual. So that's kind of how we structured it, but we always saw it as one and we treat it as one. So there's just formality that it becomes separated in paper. Mm -hmm. For us, the idea and the ethos and how we see it, it is all one thing. I, I would say it's the architecture, it's the architecture and the, the construction is the means for us to realize that aspect. It's Kate and I, on that first project, it was Kate, myself, um, more on the office side. And then on the build side, we had 12 to 13 full time during the construction of Tucson Mountain. And some of them were architects that were also craftsmen, really good at what they do. Mm -hmm. So we could sort of lean in the construction side on this duality of the architect as the builder. Mm -hmm. um, and this was a really interesting dynamic to move forward with, to have architects as the builders in the field instead of architects and then contractors building. And we'd learned a little of that structure at Sebastian's, but that was our first chance to sort of employ that. You moved very, very successful, no? You were there because it produced an um, uh, important house for you, your first house. I remember seeing it and it impressed me with its uh, craftsmanship and its logic, its lyrical placement on the side. But uh, I was wondering if we could move forward in our knowledge of your firm. And one thing that has taken us in terms of uh, appreciation or let's say kingship is this desire for you to stay in, in um, Tucson, let's say a particular city instead of being in West Texas where you started. But uh, what led you to make that decision? Obviously, uh, Kate was already working in 
in Tucson and Jesus, you gravitated to the same place, but uh, you had no second thoughts about any other city. You wanted to stay in Tucson or the, the possibility of working in Lubbock or other parts of uh, West Texas or, or the southwestern part of the United States. Did that ever enter your thoughts? I think not really. It was most likely a decision of opportunity and circumstance that we landed the Tucson mountain retreat and our feet were embedded in the mud, uh, literally. And, um, you know, our lives are here. It's a, it's a nice city. It's not too big. And, you know, we talked about doing projects in the areas you mentioned, West Texas, and mm -hmm. New Mexico, the moment to move or to, change the location would be an uprooting of sort of a foundation that we have. And so that's never really crossed our mind. And I think we see ourselves as being able to do work in those locations while maintaining a home base here. It kind of appeals this nomadic quality that I think the Southwest has had with cultures that have lived here because our interests are far outside of Tucson. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you come to Tucson, at least for myself, that feeling getting out of the airport, and, and the weather in the air and living here and knowing that in 10, 15 minutes, you could be out in the desert at the edge of the city and a little further, 30 minutes to an hour, you're in mountains in any direction. So for me personally, that natural aspect, the landscape that this town had to offer was, was a big draw for me to stay here. The ability to have that interaction. It seems perhaps that you uh, develop what one will call instant love to the, to the area. The desert, we often forget, has uh, an enchanting quality that uh, can be mesmerizing at, at times. And, uh, and I think that um, the description that you apply to being in a, in a city that is uh, a good-sized city, but then this, this ability to just forget about that city in 15, 20 minutes, you can be in this more vulnerable landscape is, is very appealing. So I, I can see the, the affection. And, and I wonder if uh, that sense of uh, place that is so important for you has also led you to consider a hands-on, a love of craftsmanship in some way, because I think the desert also has that spirit of no limits and people build almost uncritically about what they're doing. I mean, it's often disappointing to see the tragedy of house after house completely ignorant of where they are located in a setting like that. And I wonder if in your projects, you have always felt this need to construct with this um, commitment to almost a handcraft commitment that one senses in your work. Would that be something that we could perhaps talk a little bit about? Because I don't know if it happened through your experience at school. I don't know if somebody triggered this particular affection or is it something that you learn in, in Rick Joy's office or in Maris Kyle's office, in your case, Jesus. Could you talk a little bit about that? I think the poverty of an area makes people very resourceful. And you grow and you learn and you watch people. We have this sort of joke going around the office sometimes, like what would a rancher do? And it really gets back to the resourcefulness and straightforwardness that can be the beauty in pragmatic. But I think that trickles through in our work. I think we're obviously influenced by experiences at school. The only one I could trigger is that I had a, an opportunity to have a professor who had us build a lamp. And that sparked this moment of, I actually can take an idea that I've thought of 
and actually make something with intention and can it be beautiful and and that's a small scale and that's sort of how we landed into furniture and jewelry and all of those things that we move our hands i would say personally probably kept me alive when i was younger just kept me sane and on on a better path than i would have been if i didn't have that outlet so it's sort of ingrained i think in from an early age i don't feel that spark was triggered that changed the course of things but it was a natural progression Mm -hmm. The same for you, Jesus? Or there's something you want to add? I would have to sort of ingrain it to growing up in a Mexican-American family, a large family that, that would, I think, call the Southwest their home from, from El Paso to, to Los Angeles with stopping in Phoenix and cruises along the way. So a lot of my childhood was spent traveling these areas. And my, my dad and my uncles on the weekend to be able to build something at each other's houses whether just a patio slab or a wall or but I kind of grew up around it but not really realized in this sense and always helping my father with things around the house there was this just inherent not a specialty anyone does this is just what you can do but you know growing up in Texas uh, in high school in Texas and then going to university at Tech I sort of forgot all those things and I think Kate and I had a different path after that where that experience he had in university and then getting the position at Ricks, mine was more I kind of took it back to the basic when I left school I just really had a strong feeling that I needed to get back to that thing from childhood I needed to understand how to employ this building technology this craft into what we're doing and and I had a loose idea that the better I understand it the better designer architect I could be but I definitely didn't have any idea that in walking that path that I was going to deep into it and, and sort of weave that together with the architecture. Um, that was sort of evolving through the years with the experiences of being at Riggs, uh, learning from Sebastian. And then when I came back to Tucson, I actually ended up apprenticing with a Swiss craftsman that was working on some of Riggs' early projects. And so I was just for two years or so apprenticing with him, learning essentials and the basics and that just kept opening doors of getting on other architects job sites building other architects work continuing my hands as an education moving my hands as an education and so for me it, it grew it, it evolved from maybe this thing that I had as a child and I, I the only intent I would have to push myself in that direction was just this feeling that I needed to understand it I needed to know more of it and by knowing more of it, potentially you can exert some control or mastery or exercise that skill. I think the, this condition of resourcefulness that uh, Kate was speaking about and your uh, also conversations about improvising building types, uh, building conditions, all of those things that uh, spark a curiosity uh, have led you to appreciate further observing a site or observing the conditions given to you by a client and so on and so forth. So uh, that set of observations that you make uh, for a project or a site or a client are also part of your lineage. You have been doing this, paying close attention to your surroundings. And I think that shows uh, very well in your work. And I wonder if um, in that process of acknowledgement and knowledge, uh, you have 
felt a certain affinity to, let us say, certain specific materials, methods of construction. These things that you have discovered, these things that you have observed, have also become part of, of your language, and it's a language that you also share with your clients, or maybe that your clients bring this language to you. Could you perhaps uh, expand on this? Because you have said this in, in some ways, but I think we would like to know more about it. The, the palette we've been fortunate to explore under the small body of work is really rooted to a specific desire to pay attention and respect all the clues around us from people who built before the advent of air conditioning. And most of that is in the Southwest is, you know, mass walls. And there's a rammed earth. Uh, we obviously used scoria, which is a somewhat rare mass material. And then we have adobe. And then there's other versions of modern mass that we haven't gotten into yet, but we're not opposed to. But I think, I, I suppose our approach is really tying the, the materials. Can they, can they be inspired or influenced by the surrounding? And mm -hmm. can the architecture in a remote setting grow out of a site and feel as it's always been there and that conversation would be different obviously if we had an urban project but i don't know that we would in this region want to pursue another material i think we bring it to the table but clients also come to us very often saying they want mass buildings it's not a common thing obviously if you look at the built environment people wanting and understanding the, the pros and cons of living in a, in a true mass building and needing to interact with that building to help keep it cool and warm it up in the, in the appropriate season. It takes some effort, but there are, there are people that are interested in it and maybe more and more. It just somehow comes at a, a more premium of a cost. Do you discuss the, the benefits, environmental benefits or energy benefits, does that counters their fear of cost or they already know that or, or you bring it into their discussion? Uh, we definitely do. Yeah, we, we try to educate our clients as much as possible. Some of them it means something. Some people just want the aesthetic. They get different types. We're always trying to talk about the this overused word of group, you know, the green building materials. If you actually travel the Southwest and look at the history, there, there's been green building materials for a very long time, not just here, but around the world. And so it's not, it's not new. It's actually very old, sustainable thinking. And the clues are all there. And it's a lot of it's very common sense. And it does get taught in school. And I guess it's really how do we, how do we not forget those lessons? Because we have an easy access to a thermostat. And so we've been trying in every project to design in a way one can operate their home and cool it, heat it as passively as possible, even if they don't ask us for it. That's our responsibility. And some owners will be on board and embrace it. And I think others, it's just part of the design that they may not necessarily understand. It's very interesting to bring this issue of green, which has become a new commodity or sustainable architecture. Uh, I mean, all those things are obviously valid, but it has become somehow, in, in some interpretations, suspect, no? Because it, it brings 
more interest of products and gadgets and things of this nature. But but sustainability at its essence is actually common sense, as you mentioned. One thing that might be of interest to our listeners is, do you yourselves feel that perhaps a, hand, a handcrafted attitude to design or a, this uniqueness of crafting a, a project, you see this as something that we should engage more into often or is that a better way of controlling the quality of your design or even making it more affordable i mean i i wonder what you could say about all of these issues i raise i may be biased but i i definitely i can see value in architect or young architect understanding the nature of materials and and i kind of leave it that broad because one on one hand i don't think it is for everyone or needs to be for everyone. And I can take the position where I feel it would enhance the architect or designer and, and a further understanding of that material and what they do. And for Kate and I, it comes back, I think, to experience that that's our way to, to engage an occupant or user through that experience of something that we're, we're, we're touching and in turn they touch. Tactility. Um, one thing that uh, you said that you seem to indicate that is it's important for architects to know how to build with their hands or or you would like that to be at least something present in their thinking uh, how did that come about you both mentioned in some ways that it was triggered at school or working with these other architects but is that something you can teach students for instance jesus in your case uh, at the university of arizona it is something I could I could look at uh, in the education sense the the architectural model the thing that could be crafted beautifully to represent an idea and for me that's that I can attribute it to that the thing that stood out about architecture school for me and that education was that ability to take the idea and sometimes maybe I couldn't articulate it through writing as well for me it was it was a personal skill and a personal uh, trajectory and tool but I try to respect I try to relay that to the students too, that if there isn't this broad understanding of the material world and how those things go together, that there is at least a focused understanding in the putting together of, of a model, process models, study models, final models, and the desire and need to make something, make that object beautiful. And, and for me, it starts there. And then as students sort of share an interest, I, I actually teach a material fabrication course and it's mixing a lot of things and trying to understand digital tools, materials and fabrication, but the processes of actually engaging your body, your hands and your mind in a different way of thinking. And so I believe there's value and and when I teach my students, I don't feel like all those students need to be as obsessed or interested in the same thing that I am as far as those materials and articulation, but definitely that they understand that what they are drawing and what they are designing ultimately to become architecture will take on a material form, will take on a physical aspect. And to see them, we, we make small vessels out of concrete and it's a small course that they're mostly in the shop and it's all trial and error. So they, they have an idea and they make this thing and they learn how to better refine this thing. And for me, the conversation there about the experience with the material sort of happens on its own. I would just add a tangential thought that came to me is that when I think about architecture that has moved me beyond the surface of a wow, that's a impressive building, but actually gets to 
that's affecting my emotions and how I feel. They're, they're usually well-built, composed spaces, good proportions, but there's a compassion that I think exists or an empathy to the human condition that the architect has somehow imbued in, in the thought processes and the decisions. And it is obsessive, insanely obsessive. And it's hard to teach a student in the second year. It is important. Architecture can make you cry. But I think we're in an interesting time where things are more surface and less tactile and, and meaningful. And so the handcraft may be not for everyone. Maybe some people don't need it. They want slick computer modern surfaces. Uh, I would say that we're, we're really trying to find the soul and still pursue that. It's a elusive pursuit. But I think that, you know, there's probably a great many architects that understood materials enough and weren't actually moving their own hands, but they did have a mastery on the thinking and the detailing. So it's just sort of in between. For us, it's a way it's a way forward and seeing the world and it's how we educate ourselves. No, I think I think you're speaking uh, certainly about the timeless attraction that architects have towards materials because they are it's essential universe, you know, it's it's just endless. I mean whether those materials are recently invented or they are as ancient as stone, I, we all gravitate to to their force. But I was interested in what you were saying about associating material with an empathy. With, uh, in other words, the materials are not just seductive in their composition or their matter, but they also have this empathy with their dwellers. And I think I will, you know, today you can find uh, amazing works uh, produced with the most incredible tools, but they still harness this ageless quality the materials produce. And you see that in, in con many contemporary works, as you see in works of the 20th century, Albert Alto comes to mind, for instance, how, how contemporary his works are, even though they might be 80 years old, precisely because of that empathy that the architect imbued uh, his materials with, or materials imbued the work with. Speaking of, uh, we're talking about education, it's, it's important perhaps for our students to, to hear from you what, what is the value you place on a master's degree. I know both of you attended Texas Tech, as you had said earlier, and you met, uh, you created a friendship. But aside from that, how do you, how do you feel about obtaining a, a master's degree in, in today's academic climate and what, what benefits, what opportunities it has brought for you? Going into school, it sounded as that the master's would potentially open more doors of opportunity. And I think that in a case of, let's say, oh, if I were to do it again, perhaps I would have gotten a bachelor's, taken a few years, and then moved forward. I think that, that was the thinking that a master's may provide more opportunity or more, more windows would open with that, with that title. And I, th I think it's important. I think one in architecture can look at, at my old boss and look and see that he doesn't have a master's and has done quite well. And so I think it's for the individual pursuit. I've had a conversation with a, a guy who lived in Tucson. He wanted to be an architect, so he, he rented a place from Rick Joy. And he just sort of wanted to live in one of his Convent Avenue studios so he could understand it. And then he decided to say, I want to go back to school and get my master's. And he got accepted to a lot of 
Ivy League schools. And he asked me my opinion, and I said, I, I only have one point perspective. I, I went to one school and, and did it all. In retrospect, he chose Harvard. And I think for him, not coming from a place of wealth, that choice has put him in a place where he has to take on a certain job to pay off student loans. And so I think it's a tricky thing, higher education, master's. And in his case, he was a biologist. So to become an architect, he had to go back to school. So that was very logical. If I were to do it again, I might get a bachelor's and then get some real world experience and go back to school to pursue a more focused, thoughtful mm-hmm. master. I mean, I think you answer it very positively that it has had an impact on you and you certainly you cannot guarantee that for anyone's future but but for you and and i i assume for you as well jesus it, had, it was a, an important decision I, that opened these windows for me there was this opportunity and i didn't realize it at the time because I, I think as kate was saying we maybe share that similar sentiment where i knew in the way it was presented to us that more opportunities would come from that i didn't know how i couldn't sort of make that tangible, but we had to sort of put our head down and and go through this program. But I I remember a shift of moving from undergrad to graduate school. For me personally, there there was a level of more seriousness from expected of me from uh, from the professors and actually of myself. And it allowed me a deeper personal inquiry with architecture. And it seemed to allow that for any of the students in the master's program were they able to identify for themselves. For me, it was this culmination of these ideas and ethics and sort of establishing that for myself. In some ways, I look back at it and I, I wish I was, as Cade was sharing, gone through a bachelor's and then went out and got work experience and then came back into that program more mature. And, and I'm always curious as to, with that maturity, how much deeper that experience might have been. But aside from that, I think it had a resonance. It had a, an impact of digging my own roots into this, this craft of architecture. I'll, I'll add that I remember finishing the, the thesis project and, and, and afterwards, probably several months afterwards, feeling like, wow, I can produce a lot of work and I can produce <laughs> a lot of thought. And I think it's a special time. I mean, that's an invaluable experience of personal investment if you take it seriously. And when I was teaching at the U of A, I would always tell students, school's what you make it. And it's an opportunity. If, if you were to put on paper, dust would come out of Texas Tech. I mean, it makes sense. But, you know, I don't know that people would rank it at the top of accrediting NAAB. I know it's not in the top 10. And I know it's not in the top 20, but it's what we made it. And I think a lot of that had to do with professors and then students and that experience. And I think getting the master's was, it was huge personal growth. It, it's like going through the cauldron or coming out harder steel. Well, I think it gives you, as uh, I think you both have placed it into this definition of a platform. It gives you a, an opportunity to um, to not only value what you have learned as an undergraduate but really now targeted to uh, to other options and i think that's truly the benefit of a, a master's education whether it happens to be at lubbock or at berkeley and and you make uh, the most of that uh, realization i think you 
have explained it very well. I, I was curious if uh, if we could perhaps um, ask you something that is um, a credit to your success. I know that you have been very, um, uh, you have not built a lot, but whatever you have built, it has always met with great enthusiasm and awards. And it's very rare that uh, the Record Houses Award, which are so difficult to obtain, and your two houses have obtained those awards. And congratulations. But uh, one thing that um, took us all uh, with a certain uh, curiosity was this um, uh, one of your houses landing in the, the Netflix show, World's Most Extraordinary Homes. How was how that uh, sudden exposure? Yeah, we got contacted out of the blue, just the email. And I would say we were very reluctant at first. I think there's not necessarily a desire to want to be on television. And they did a short interview and the experience was pretty brief um, in person with the hosts. In retrospect, it came out in the UK first and then we had no idea. We got a clip and I was like, okay, and that's nice, you know, are we going to get work from this? Probably not. And then they released it on Netflix. And I, I suppose the amusing part was for a month, we got every desert rat trying to contact us for, <laughs> for some unrealistic project. I mean, and, and we entertained them all. We had a list of potential clients that was very long and none of them were real. And so it was, it was entertaining in that way. Uh, but we had we've had positive feedback overall and we don't always ask people how they find us some volunteer information but maybe it's helped you know make our name a little wider so it's brought it to a wider audience i suppose you never know maybe the the chairman of netflix might want to have a a house yeah. somewhere in the chihuahua hey, desert hey Sue just showed me a clip that the Tucson Mountain Retreat was on Ellen with the hosts of the show. They showed the house. It has a life of its own, so good luck with that. <laughs> it, since uh, you're at an interesting juncture right now in your young career, and uh, you know, this award that this Rice Design Alliance Award is another proof of that. And, and um, so we're curious to, to know if you have any particular goals or ambitions or how would you like to move forward or you just keep the momentum and the, the methodology that you have developed already or are you interested in doing other things besides architecture i know that you, you pursue um, furniture design and uh, and jewelry as i remember when um, when i met um, one of you in marfa years ago uh, you mentioned this so is there anything like that that you can tell us we're always making something, either personal or for a client or a customer with a small scale. We call them particles. That's always a pursuit. I think it's our um, immediate satisfaction with little interference from the outside can be our musings of moving our hands. But I think architecture can be a, a long process and to actualize and realize and build space. So I know we, we definitely lean on and we'll probably continue to lean on uh, crafting these small artifacts, these objects as an exercise or as exploration, just kind of keeping tuned, keeping our hands tuned to that. And mostly for fun, designing and making for fun. And I think that's always sort of like a side gig. That we, we find it actually feeds and influences daily life and work. And so that's nice. We can make the connection. But I, I wouldn't 
at this point say that's part of the larger goal or the larger vision. I think for us, humbly, is to continue to be able to do what we're doing, um, pursue the architecture at any scale of architecture. And, and I think some of the goals that we've thrown out there are definitely to scale up. And we just hired a full-time employee, so that feels good. We have a few potential projects on the horizon and a few under our belt right now that are in process. So hopefully they see us beyond 2020 and uh, the opportunities of designing and building architecture in this region but beyond, I think, would be a goal, as well as different typologies of architecture. But it sounds to me like you're very much set in uh, whatever the future brings you, that it has to retain this pleasure and this enjoyment that you have derived from your previous adventures in architecture. So I, and I think that um, it might lead in a different way to a question that I think is critical for all of us that border Mexico. As you know, uh, there's this possibility that this border wall might happen in some fashion. And Arizona certainly is a combative border. Texas has more natural borders. But I, I wonder if, if this new realization, new uh, change in the climate between the, this uh, border condition has affected you in, in some way. I mean, I don't know, through uh, relationships you have with craftsmen, with workers, or even potential clients. And if you have sense any of these convulsions in your part of, of the world. You're very close to the border. Tucson is, uh, what is it, 60 miles to the border? Yeah, less than an hour away in the car. I think that the border wall, the rhetoric around it, I think the people that live on the border don't see the same perspective as people who don't live on the border. It seems like there's a lot of Americans that think it's important and necessary, but I find that some of those conversations are happening very far removed from this place and true knowledge of the culture of living on the border. How it's affected us, I'm not sure. I would say that the, the law passed in 2010 here, the SB 1070, which is the very strict Arizona state legislative immigration policy, that one is still in place. And I would say the feeling was palpable of people being repulsed of Arizona. I had many conversations around that time that people were leaving and commerce was, even to an extent of people were taking their business elsewhere based on that policy. I think that one was more felt, but also the economy was suffering because we had the recession in 2008. So it's probably a double whammy. But when we talk to our elders around, you know, they say even though the economy is good, it's still not the same as it was. And so it's hard to really put a pin on mm -hmm. cause. But I think the conversation goes far beyond architecture. And I think we see some effects to our work, probably not directly, mostly indirectly. My interest in that goes to the ecological impact, cultural impact. They're a big question mark, but I think a lot of people, scientists, conservationists, landowners, ranchers, I think people can speculate that any physical barrier there will impact that immediate environment in yeah. ways that, that will be negative. And so it's, it's from all those negative consequences of that, that do the positives outweigh it? I don't know if we can answer that. We could take a stand for what we believe. Looking at it, base level of digging a line and manifesting an actual physical barrier, whatever is reason to stop whatever, seems like not a great idea. And for many reasons, I mean, I think there's a, a subtle economy, a border economy that people are trying
trying to enrich and that will affect as far as commerce, trade, resources, natural resources. It'd be an interesting conversation to have, I feel like, with, with all these sort of stakeholders at the table. We have a, we have yeah. a lot of ex experiences of the border. And I would say when I moved here, I grew up, I grew up in Carlsbad, New Mexico. So I grew up two hours pretty much from El Paso. I grew up mm -hmm. going down there as a kid and then as a teen and then moving to Tucson as an adult. In 2002, there were two Border Patrol vehicles at a nearby station in Patagonia, Arizona. And now there's 300 vehicles. And so when you talk about this wall, people don't understand how militarized our border are to be. And, you know, we, we went to take photos and within five minutes of standing on the border wall, there was a helicopter flying around them. So there's being money pumped in. I think the, the physical barrier, in my opinion, is it's not sensitive and it's not really realistic and thoughtful. I don't think it solves the problems that people think it's solving. I think what it does to people who don't live in Arizona is I think that there's a perception that Arizona must be dangerous. Or I, I live in Arizona, but I don't want to live near the border. I think it's an unfortunate stereotype that gets placed upon place because of rhetoric that's not realistic and mostly propaganda, I would, I would argue. But. Yeah, no, I can, I can see your point. I agree it's a destructive partition more than anything and it, it has consequences that no one really is truly examining and, and the rhetoric takes over everything and politics. But I, I do want to end in a more positive note of congratulations on you receiving our award and I, I speak on behalf of the school and the Rice Design Alliance to say that we look forward to having you with us in a couple of weeks and we will continue this conversation through the agency of your lecture where you will tell us i'm sure all the nuances and the stories behind the work that you continue to do and again thank you for for this time and uh, if you'd like to offer any last remarks uh, wish you well and see you in houston thank you carlos and uh, we're very humbled to receive this spotlight awards and excited to uh, join you and and others in houston my, my only remark is to quote yourself and say, remember where you came from and it will set you free. For more information on Dust and their upcoming lecture, visit the latest news tab on the Rice Architecture website. Don't forget to subscribe to our page on SoundCloud to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Rose Wolkowski, and this has been Tete a Tete.